This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today, journalist for BuzzFeed News, covering income inequality, Vanessa Wong. How are you doing, Vanessa? I'm great. Thanks for having me. The funny thing is, you that's that does seem to be your beat, is income inequality. And you were mentioning just as we were just before we started recording about the fact that you're you're kind of on a team at BuzzFeed News. What does the team kind of do? Yeah, so this team was formed last year, sort of in the early stages of the pandemic. I mean, really, it's been the story in America forever. <laughs> yeah, the but idea real... of income inequality is not exactly it, indeed, new just because yeah, of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's this, sort of this like perpetual state of our society that really has been heightened since the last recession. Is that something that you were drawn to before you were put on this team? Like, did that kind of infuse some of your writing before this year? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, strangely, so I've had a number of jobs as a reporter. Um, my first like beat reporting job was on the food beat. Oh, interesting. Um, and you see that food as a news story has become about low income workers in many ways, you know, yeah. it became about the fight for 15 at points, um, 15, a $15 minimum wage. It became right. about, you know, corporate profits at franchised um, fast food chains. And so you sort of start to see how income inequality permeates, you know, something as mundane as the food industry. And then I started working as an editor on our tech and business desk. And you see in some of the tech companies how, I mean, you could argue that inequality is sort of part of the business model there when you have independent contractors and gig workers um, with no security or benefits working for companies with some of the richest people in America at their helm. And so, you know, once once you once your eyes are open to it, it's everywhere, you know, like I, I, I I'm in the matrix, you know, like I see it yeah, all yeah. at this point. <laughs> and, and that that uh, that inequality thing when it comes to, you know, the, the gig economy, we're going to be talking about in the, that in the very first thing that we discuss. Um, you are in Brooklyn right now, correct? I am in Brooklyn. And what are things like for for lockdown right now there? Are you are I'm, I'm assuming things have reopened a little bit. Um, I know here in Toronto, things are still, we are in complete lockdown. Restaurants are still closed. Everything's still closed. What's going on there? We just reopened restaurants for partial capacity. I can't remember if it's 25 or 30% at this point. Oh, right. So you yeah. Do yeah, see, I think it's 25. Someone told me it was 25. Yeah, you do see some brave people um, eating <laughs> Some <laughs> people would masks. use a different adjective, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brave people eating without masks indoors now. Um, you know, the I think the hospitality and restaurant industry groups are really pro reopening. I think public health groups are very anti reopening. Right. I mean, you just see sort of like this unresolvable conflict between, you know, making money and keeping the uh, virus under control that just seems to be unresolvable until people get vaccinated, which is, you know, happening at, you know, some very slow pace (laughs) right now. I mean, you know, New York is not um, doing it as quickly as I had expected it to, to get to it. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of people like right now, I think eligibility is still mostly limited to people with like certain health conditions and people um, over the age of 65. And it's hard to get an appointment. It is like sort of the first ray of hope I've had in a long time, though. My parents just got their first shot. And it's 
a relief, like sort of the psychic weight that's lifted once like someone you know gets their vaccine is is hard to express. I mean, no, actually, that's I think that that way of putting it, the psychic weight that's been lifted is a really great way to put it. I, it's funny that you say that. I was just talking to my mom this morning. Hi, mom, because I know she's listening. To the Hi, show, mom. <laughs> um, and she uh, just got a, a call from her doctor. Uh, saying that she is set up for for her shots potentially coming in the next couple of weeks, and it's the same it's the same idea. Sort of like okay, ah, uh, you know, there's a little part of your body that can breathe again, even though it's not you, it's your loved ones. You can sort of say okay, there's a little a little bit of light because we've certainly uh, not had a whole lot of it over the last twelve months. No, I mean, what's the tangible progress been? You know, for the last year, it's been not impressive. <laughs> And even when rates were low, that did feel sort of like a consequence of luck more than anything else. Like our positivity rates in New York City are still quite high, you know, so it's just right. it's hard to know when you can sort of celebrate. But, you know, hopefully this vaccine's good and the mutations don't, you know, mess everything up and, you know, and we're on our way towards something that was better than 2020. I mean, that's all I can hope for right now. Well, I mean, as you reported and getting us, leading us into thing number one, there were many people who were celebrating during last year. Are you ready to roll? I'm ready. Here we go. Thing one. Thing number one, these people made tons of money in 2020 as the world fell apart. This is a piece that you reported on in BuzzFeed, where you enumerated many of the sectors of society that made a lot of money during the pandemic. Now, anyone who was paying attention could think about, if I asked the average person on the street, hey, who do you think made a lot of money during the pandemic? I'm going to guess that the first name that would come to a lot of people would be Amazon and Jeff Bezos, because, and th that's no surprise, because many of us, myself included, were grudgingly having to make many of our purchases through Amazon because our stores were closed. But you touched on a few that were not so quick to mind when you think about who profited during the pandemic. What's the one that surprised you the most when you were researching this? I think it was the credit bureaus. Oh, that that was an that, interesting one. Explain explain how they made so much money, because it's fascinating. We all get our credit scores from these credit bureaus. That's sort of the only thing that I use them for, really. And so they had a good year because of the home buying spree that happened, because interest rates were low, people decided it was time to buy a house, some city people decided they needed a country house, all that stuff. But they also have a business that I didn't know about until I was reporting this story, which is an unemployment claims management business. And so companies hire them to help deal with their unemployment claims. <laughs> and it was... Gee, I wonder if there were any of those last year. I, I, I'm sorry I laugh, but it just is so dark that a company can make money off of people losing their jobs. Oh, that that's a, that's a theme with a number of these. We'll get to my sort of quote unquote favorite in a second. But the, that's, that is one of the interesting themes of this, which is that there are these people um, who just by virtue of the way their business is set up are set to make money as people are losing jobs or doing other things. Exactly. So, you know, Equifax reported that in just a single quarter, a three month period, they made $50 million from unemployment claims management. Wow. Um, you know, and in like the grand scope of Equifax's business, this is not huge, but it is just what they made in three months. And it does sort of like highlight how a company can profit from the pandemic, which is, you know, the theme of this story. <laughs> I did have one more thought just about this unemployment claims business. Yeah, yeah, yeah shoot. So I was just saying, um, you know, so that business really shows how a company can make 
profit during the pandemic. And one of the other interesting things about this unemployment claims management business is that that data can be used by the credit bureaus um, clients like their like lenders to further assess the credit worthiness of individuals because your employment status isn't immediately reflected in your credit score. Ah, right? Okay, okay. So, you know, <laughs> this added data point gives them a richer picture of who you are and whether or not you need, you know, are, are deserving of a loan. Well, I mean, let, let's just back up for just a second and talk about the big ones, the big ones that we would all assume and think about, because some of the data and the facts that you pulled out of those were really quite astonishing. I mean, you have 2020, a lot of people are, you know, out of jobs, a lot of people are hungry, a lot of people are in debt, a lot of people are at risk of losing their homes, and then you have all the others. Now, one of the data points that you said right off the top of your piece was that the, the wealth of America's billionaires increased by, what was, was it, $9.3 billion by the fall? Yeah, um, the combined wealth of America's 664 billionaires is up by one point three trillion dollars oh, compared to a year ago and this is according to report in <clears throat> u.s news and world report and one of the things that you emphasize in your piece is that much of that profit was done on the backs of the people who were employed by these people in the gig economy like for example when you think about uh deliver food delivery services like doordash or uh, Grubhub or Skip the Dishes or any of those places, these saw a huge jump in demand, obviously, as many of us were ordering out on Friday when due to you know, shelter-in-place orders or whatever. And all of the people who are out on their bikes and out in their cars doing this are not necessarily reaping the profits as much as the shareholders and the people who are owning the company. Yeah, totally. I mean, food delivery companies had an incredible year. I mean, to your point, no one can go out and eat anymore and you sort of get tired of cooking three meals a day at some point. Right. Um, and there was sort of this movement to support your local restaurants if you could. You know, I think a lot of people felt very connected to their community in that way and and saw in like a very tangible way how your community can fall apart very quickly without oh, yeah. <clears throat> some concerted effort. So, you know, food delivery companies became the answer. Grubhub Seamless saw a massive spike in demand. DoorDash went public last year. <laughs> um, you know, did they really? They had an IPO? I they didn't did know that. have an IPO, yeah, and it made a lot of money for their executives, you know. I remember saying to my wife during the summer last year that pretty much if you were starting any kind of business, in, in no matter what the sector, you would be smart to start any business that had to do with delivery of a service or product within your home because it was not like any of us were going to be going out in the near future anyway. And here we are, you know, in March of the following year, and it's still true. Yeah. I mean, the food delivery business is just so interesting because it's increasingly popular, and yet these companies manage not to make any money. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's problematic in a lot of ways. The restaurants during the pandemic needed to turn to these services to reach their customers, but they were paying massive fees to them that made it unsustainable. Um, and a lot of restaurants were asking their customers on social media to order from them directly if possible, right. because the fees being you know as high as 30% really mean that the profit to them is negligible at the end of the day and not a sustainable way to earn a living. So you know it was problematic for the restaurants, some of which, by the way, never even elected to be on those platforms. The platforms were adding them 
um, without their consent um, and just sort of like. Wait, is that is that possible? They can do that. They can just say, yeah, we're, we're delivering for you now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And they just wow. act as a middleman. So the customer doesn't know the difference. You know, um, they just go on and see a restaurant's menu listed. But um, they do end up paying the fees to the middleman company for delivering that order to them. But anyway, you know, you have restaurants paying fees or sort of, you know, having a presence on these platforms when they didn't even know that that was happening. The independent contractors or gig workers who power these companies, let me say, not not sharing in the boon that was that was happening right. and also being arrested and assaulted during, you know, the tensest moments during the summer when when there were protests around the right. country. Um, and so it was a really scary time, you know, and it's amazing that that was a ray of light in capitalism in 2020. <laughs> and and going back to your point about the people who were kind of not reaping the profits, getting us back to Amazon for a second, as you reported in, in the first nine months of last year, Amazon's profit increased by about 70% to $14 billion. Uh, Jeff Bezos' net worth rose by $74 billion. And that's not how much he made. That's how much his net worth rose, $74 billion to nearly $190 billion. Meanwhile, at the same time, you have thousands of workers who are protesting for higher pay, for paid sick leave, and getting sick because they're testing positive in Amazon warehouses around North America. Yeah, I mean, 20,000 employees tested positive for COVID last that's year crazy. at Amazon. That is crazy. I wonder if we know what the what the sort of fatality rate of those was, like how many people actually died working for Amazon last year Gosh. because of because of the pandemic. I'll be sure to ask Amazon. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm sure they'll be they'll very, very quick to offer that information up for sure. Sure. Let me get the facts. Up. Right. You know, I mean, I think their defense is, you know, we invested a lot of money to create a safe working place for our employees. But was there a safe place for employees to be last year? Let's be honest. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, that's that's a really interesting kind of philosophical question, which is anybody who was working. I remember the very first time I went out to a supermarket, you know, last March and sort of thinking about the fact that, you know, what makes an essential worker right now? It's not, you know, bank presidents. It's not, you know, captains of industry. It's the people who are selling you your ice cream. It's the people who are, you know, bringing, you know, it's, it's obviously healthcare workers and all the rest of it. And all of these people, you know, teachers, et cetera, they're all working in places that are not safe for them to be, but where they have to be just that, that tension of what is essential in a society or not. Yeah. I mean, I don't, know about you, but it created a lot of moral conflict for me. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. What was what was the big one for you? What was the big moral conflict? For oh, you? Well, when the pandemic first started, I was actually on maternity leave. So I was having, you know, I wasn't leaving my house all that much in general, just because I had a baby at home. But um, when I did leave, it was to buy food, you know, and you sort of realize that the things that you need to stay alive are being provided to you by people who are in more precarious employment positions than than many of us are in, you know? Yeah, people who have to go to their jobs to do their jobs to make their money in spite of the fact that they know they are taking a risk in doing so. Like somebody like a doctor or a nurse, they, they know the risks, but that's also an essential part of their job. Somebody who's working at your local CVS did not sign up for this. Yeah, 100%. And many white collar workers felt, well, you know, I can't go in because I have a family, I have to keep some, 
I have to keep them safe. Those essential workers have the exact same dilemma, you know, many of them have their own children or have other relatives that they need to care for, but have no choice but to go into work every day to to support themselves and their families. And earn a wage that was hard to do that in the first place, you know? And one of the stories I had done over the summer was speaking to essential workers who were parents and essential workers who uh, ran daycares. And it was, I mean, you know, every single day was just a, a new risk for them, you know? And yeah. it just it just really, I think, opened our eyes to um, how undervalued so many members of our society are who keep things going. Let's hope let's hope we can say were instead of are, because I think a lot of people are, you know, this year did start to appreciate the value of many of those members of society. Um, just getting back to your piece for a second, one of the ones in terms of who profited from the pandemic that I found the most fascinating were medical insurance companies for the main reason, which I just found fascinating, was that, of course, a lot of people were not getting routine or elective medical care during the pandemic. Those were either put off or whatever the the, the procedures would have been. And consequently, these insurance companies did not have to pay out for those anymore and, and thus saw these boom years. Yeah, I mean, who loves their health insurance company? <laughs> uh, but... It's, I, I will say it's hard for me, of course, because here I am in Canada with universal health care. So all of this is a little bit moot for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of just, you know, having um, access to a doctor and not having to worry about the the cost of that care is, uh, I don't know, like a fantasy for many Americans. But yeah, it's I will say it's nice. It's yeah. One of the nice things about being Canadian, for sure. Um, I mean, you know, so yeah, to your point, like people weren't going in for elective procedures last year, and it was um, a huge concern for hospitals. Hospitals were, you know, lobbying for more relief money because they were like, look, no one's coming in unless they have COVID. Like most of their departments were functionally shut down because of the pandemic. Right. People weren't seeking care that they needed. And so it created this mess in terms of actual care. But the beneficiary of that were insurers who no longer had to pay out those claims. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of sum it up in your piece when you said, I'm, I'm just going to quote you here because it's a great sentence. You say the divergence underscores just how drastically financial, political and corporate systems are built to benefit those who already have so much, even in times of widespread loss and exclude the have-nots, which is basically, that's every single story you're, you report on pretty much. I mean, that's in income inequality in a nutshell right there. 2020 saw it put together in the most unfortunately clear package we can imagine. 100%. Yeah, that is all I think about. And I'm a, I'm a lot of fun, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Thing two. Thing number two, the deadly winter storm in Texas has exposed the state's deep inequalities. Now, you and I are in the Northeast. You are in Brooklyn and I am in Toronto. Consequently, some snow and some cold is not alien and not foreign to us. And so I think a lot of people in our situation were kind of looking at what happened in Texas last month as this, wow, how did that even happen? The etymology of the, how this happened is a, a, a complex political and economic soup of various other things. But you didn't focus on that. You focused on the fact that this storm exposed the fact that those who could would do things like rent wonderful hotels. Some people even went to vacations to Cancun. I'm trying to think Gee, of anyone who in particular. Was that? Who went to Cancun from... Anyway, I, I Just, can't remember their name. Let, let me put my mind on cruise control and see if I can oh, figure it out. Oh, very good. I am. That's what I'm talking about. Um, 
whereas <laughs> other people did not. What were, what were some of the main things you found when you were looking into this? Yeah, I mean, Texas was just this really horrible crisis. Everyone was in a desperate position. But then you saw how different the options were, even for middle class Texans, than those who had less. Right. Actually, I'll pause you for a second and say, because you just said something which is really important, which is that this particular natural disaster when it comes to this one is different from a lot of natural disasters, especially in the United States. If you think about a hurricane, they had Hurricane Harvey that, you know, there are floods that happen in Houston, etc. But this, those were just affecting people, you know, along the Gulf Coast. This affected virtually every single place all across the state of Texas. You're talking about every single county had some aspect of this hit to them. That's right. Yeah. I mean, natural disasters are more or less indiscriminate in terms of who they impact. Right. I mean, the built environment is, of course, another um, another issue. But yes, you did see people across race and income spectrums um, affected by this winter storm. And the difference was people with means had other options. And that's just that's all money is, is it gives you other options and it gives you more choices. So they were able to afford hotels, some of which increased their prices during this time because hotels have made no money since last March. Um, Wait, people were price gouging during a natural disaster? I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, a hotel doing it is one thing, but um, my one of my colleagues that I worked on this story with uh, Clarissa Lim, she found uh, someone talking about how they were paying about $15 for, you know, a, a box of water. Really? Desperation leads people to do really bad things, you know, and I, I can't imagine how it feels to charge someone $45 for water so that their family can stay alive. But, you know, that's where we're at. That's the thing, right? I mean, it, it, we, it's a little bit kind of like we were talking about in the pandemic in the first section. It's that weird tension that exists between your physical physical and health and well-being and your life and economic well-being, both of which are tremendously important, right? We cannot say, okay, I'm nice and healthy, but I don't have a job and I don't have any way to feed my family, so everything's fine, because both of those things are vitally important. But in Texas, you had this kind of weird stew of things that made this happen. For, I mean, for those who don't know fully, I guess the best way to put it would be that this winter storm hit Texas, um, very, very big cold front, a lot of snow, and at the end of the day, the thing that cost uh, the, the state the most is that the power grid just could not survive. And so the power grid went down during this tremendous cold, during this tremendous snow. Texas has mostly a natural gas grid. And the other thing about this is that Texas, as you report in your piece, is this, of course, notoriously proud of its own independence. And because of that, Texas is not connected to really any other grid. The power grid is run independently. Consequently, there could not be any offset of power from other grids towards Texas because they have long said, nope, we're good. Thanks very much. We, uh, we have our own power. We don't need any of your help. Right. And so you have this sort of like, you know, deregulated privatized grid um, that hasn't been maintained properly for a long time. Um, and no one has power except for the wealthy, right? Like if you have a backup generator in your house, you were able to sort of get by at least during the, the storm. Right. And, you know, other people who, for example, don't have cars. There's no escape for someone who doesn't have access to transportation like that, you know? And so I think they're just sort of like these um, micro differences in what people's resources are that we take for granted on a daily level. 
on, on a daily basis. And then when it comes to a crisis situation like this, you see how those that, that gap in resources really plays out in terms of people's well-being and survival. One of the things I didn't think about that you reported on was people who were incarcerated, people in prisons, and uh, a lot of them were being forced to survive without running water, no heat, no working toilets, a single blanket to keep them warm. I mean, just those little things that we don't think about while, as you mentioned, wealthier residents, a lot of them had backup generators, they could book hotel rooms, they could travel out of state as one famous person did. Um, and the difference between those two was put into the stark contrast by this storm and by this crisis. And even though the crisis is over, the fact is that the repercussions of it are just beginning. We'll talk about the politics of it in a second because those themselves are fascinating. But right now, currently, they are estimating, I'm just reading sort of this today in the, in the Texas Tribune, they are estimating that they're looking at a possibility of $125 billion in damage, which is, would make it the most expensive disaster in Texas history, even more than Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. I mean, if you think about all of the people, and we saw many of these videos come out while the storm was still happening, whose pipes burst, whose houses were flooded, what, where do they go now? You know, there aren't enough shelters for everybody who doesn't have an inhabitable place right now. I always think about that when it comes to people, when there's reporting on a natural disaster, of course, the news media moves on, right? They they moved on from Katrina, they moved on from this, that, and the other thing, and, and, and we sort of find other things to occupy our media minds. What happens to these people? You know, there's there's tons of people now who's, you know, don't have power, they don't have houses, they don't have whatever because of all this. Their situation is not changing over the next few weeks. You know, here we are two or three weeks out from this happening. And these people, as you and I are talking right now, are, you know, sitting in a makeshift shelter somewhere. I was talking to a woman who uh, works at a one of the warming stations called Code Blue, and she was describing to me the line of people that had formed before they normally even opened for their evening services. So usually they open around like seven o'clock, and that one evening when it was freezing outside and there was heavy snow, there were dozens of people lined up outside to have access to heat you know, to shelter. Right. And, um, you know, they decided to open up early before they were even set up to take these folks in because there, there's really no other option in, in that moment. You know, people were sprawled throughout the facility in corners that they've normally never opened up to anybody at all, you know, just sort of like sitting. And this is, by the way, not a shelter. They don't have beds or anything. So they're just people sitting like staying warm, you know, hoping wow. to get some food if it's available. And um, yeah, I, I really would love to follow up on what happens in shelters like that and warming stations like that as the state recovers from from this disaster, because I think a lot of people are going to need more services than Texas is prepared to give. But we'll see, you know. <laughs> that leads us up to what happens going forward, right? Because now you have you know, dozens of Texans who are dead. A lot of people froze to death in their beds or their living rooms. Some people um, suffocated in their cars because they were that was the only place they could keep warm and they were poisoned by carbon monoxide. Some people died in house fires because they were trying to keep their family warm. And it might seem crass to sort of game out the politics of this, but at the same time, people are going to be looking for someone to blame. And, you know, Texas is, you know, a longstanding red state, but has become increasingly purple over the years. And so as, you know, you, you look at the governor who's going to be up for re-election soon, there's going to be a lot of people sort of saying that there, there has to be a price to pay. I know that political memories are very, very short, but at the same time, this is not a disaster that was 
unpreventable. It's not like a hurricane that they couldn't stop. This was caused by a large number of decisions made by politicians uh, in terms of deregulation, in terms of the grid, the response even, which was not the best. So you have to wonder what the upshot is going to be. Yeah, we'll see. You know, our recent political history has just uh, surprised me over and over again. And so I have... uh, (laughs) You know, I will not claim to understand, you know, all of the mechanisms that sway people to vote one way or another. But yeah, I imagine that this uh, particular incident will will at least lead a large number of people to demand change. The question is whether that will actually happen. Who knows? We shall see. We We shall shall see. see. Thing three. Thing number three, Trump zealots can no longer hide behind economic anxiety. This comes in the shadow of the January 6th insurrection. And it has long been a, I mean, you and I will call it a myth, but not a lot of people wouldn't call it a myth, that that one of the main forces compelling Americans to support Donald Trump was economic anxiety. These voiceless people who were on the lower class. We've talked about the lower class. We've talked about the needy in the first two segments of the show. A lot of those people uh, are, it doesn't matter what political spectrum they belong to. Many of these people are Democrats, many are Republicans, many are uh, neither. And one of the myths that you call out in this piece is that many of these people were supporting Donald Trump because of economic anxiety. But explain how you think that January 6th shattered that myth. Oh boy, January 6th was just the most unimaginable thing to ever happen. Whatever sort of benefit of the doubt the media onlookers had given to some of the most devout Trump zealots over the past four years could no longer be defended when you hear them chanting things like hang Mike Pence, when they're constructing nooses, saying murder the media, and waving Confederate flags in the Capitol. This is not about economic anxiety. Economic anxiety does not drive you to do something like that. Their actions were not reflective of people hungry for economic opportunity, you know? Yeah, I mean, as you put it, you you quoted a woman named Sarah Crozier in your piece, who I think put it really the best when she said, quote, when people attack the Capitol waving Confederate flags, they are not expressing economic anxiety. They are expressing a desire to dominate, which if you've been following Trump for the last four years, you know that it's not a big stretch to see that many people who would be Trump supporters would also have that desire to dominate because it's something it's it's a quality that he extolled you know on on a regular basis and still does that's right that's right and to sort of like mask that as patriotism or an effort to save america just feels like so unbelievable to me you know i mean what does that mean what is save, saving america from what it's such a nebulous goal you know right well from from the other from people who are not like you Right. That's the idea. Anyone who is not like you, they're the people who are coming to get you. I mean, this is this is how QAnon got started, is that everyone who is not like you is somebody who is coming for you. The tricky thing for me when it comes to this kind of thing is that many of these people who are, you know, the the Trump supporters, the MAGA people, they are people who do need help. They are people who are economically not well off. That is a driving factor behind a lot of Trump zealots, behind a lot of Trump voters, behind a lot of Republicans that cannot be denied. So you can't write it off. But at the same time, as you're reporting in this piece, you can't just say that that's the main thing because it is long since past the point where it was the main thing, if it ever was in the first place. Right, exactly. And you're right. I mean, there were people who 
um, set up GoFundMes to, you know, raise the funds to get to D.C. for the protest. Right. And you reported that a lot of those pages have been taken down since then, right? Yes. After I contacted GoFundMe, um, they continue to take down <laughs> more <laughs> of those campaigns. I think, you know, I, actually, you should look this up, Don. I can't exactly remember the policy, but I think they made some policy that they would no longer be supporting some sort of, you know, related campaign after right. that. A lot of Trump supporters are economically disadvantaged, but that economic disadvantage doesn't lead you to march into the Capitol and ask to overturn the results of an election. I just feel like there are two different things going on right there. Well, I mean, look at what you said. You, you mentioned in the pieces, look at some of the people who are rallying for Trump in D.C. There was Derek Evans, a newly affected official from West Virginia. There was Rick Sacconi, a former Pennsylvania lawmaker who taught international relations and global terrorism. Oh, irony alert at St. Vincent's college. He's since resigned. There was a Chapman University professor named John Eastman. Uh, these are not people who are working at Walmart. These people are doing perfectly fine. That's right. And using economic anxiety as a way to explain the motivations of everybody who showed up that day just is no longer a statement that we can make in good faith. Right. And I think what a lot of folks that I spoke to who work sort of on uh, human rights issues point to is that economic and anxiety and racism have gone hand in hand and fed off each other yeah. throughout American history. And it doesn't stop now, you know? I mean, this is true for immigrants. This has been true for Black Americans. And um, I think to leave out the racism part of this equation is leaving out a big part of the picture. Oh, I mean, you have 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump in November. To assume that most of them did that based on economic reasons is just absolutely foolish. We we know this. I mean, the, the, the riot at the Capitol, the insurrection is just the tip of the spear, right? That's the thing that is poking out of the top of the water. But underneath that iceberg is so much of this stew of various other things, some of which are legitimate concerns, right? I mean, it's foolish to assume that I'm, I'm assuming that you and I both lean to the left when it comes to politically, but at the same time, many people have valid arguments on every single aspect of the political spectrum and they all have to be listened to. But at the same time, to use them as an excuse for some of the less savory aspects of the MAGA movement, which we have seen over the last four years, is also somewhat troublesome. Yeah. I was watching this Tucker Carlson clip. Oh, my sympathies. <laughs> <laughs> but it represented a view, you know? Let me pull it up. Um, a vote for Trump is a vote against the ruling class. Is exactly. That the one? Yeah. That's right. I know quoting Tucker Carlson is maybe, well, you know, but he represents <laughs> a perspective, you know? And I think what he was saying was that. A lot of people who voted for Trump in, you know, in 2016 and 2020 felt forgotten except as a target for mockery. And so, you know, Trump gave them affirmation. Um, Which, by the way, is true. I hate to say that Tucker Carlson is right about anything, but he is 100% true, is that a lot of people did feel like they were they were sort of the target of mockery and they voted for Trump because it did give them affirmation. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Many of these folks say, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not a bigot. I'm not a misogynist. You know, I don't hate immigrants. It's just that I don't see myself in the alternative. And, you know, I, I would just love to speak to more of them about what they feel about that statement now. Uh, yeah, and you know what? I, I think that's, I think you, you put your finger on it. I would love to speak to more of them too. And, and I think that's one of the things, 
I, this is a huge, massive, large philosophical point that wiser people than I have made. But I think one of the things that's leading to the problem is, of course, the big sort. The fact that you and I have these circles in our social media and various other things where we're kind of insulated in these bubbles and these echo chambers that are being amplified. And we don't hear some of the quite legitimate concerns from people who believe in things politically different from us. And, and of course, it leads us to believe that, oh, you are not one of me, then I hate you. You are one of them, then you and I are not on the same team, which is, you know, it's the most toxic thing you can imagine when it comes to getting anything done. I mean, look at what's happening in, in Congress right now is that nothing has happened, I think, since 1923, basically. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a long time since anything of note happened in Congress. And that's the main reason is because no one wants to cooperate anymore, because if you're not us, you're them. Right. Yeah. And I think like that's one of the most remarkable impacts social media has had on society is just the um, inability to not inability. It's like the lack of exposure many people now have to people who don't share the same value systems that they do. It goes beyond news sources. It's everything, everything that shapes who you are and what you believe right. no longer is tempered by folks who are different. You know, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but just before the pandemic, my wife and I went down to Charleston, to South Carolina, and just because we wanted to get away for March break and, you know, uh, experience some warmth. And we went knowing that we were going into Trump country and neither one of us is of that political stripe. And it was really fascinating for us to experience the absolute friendliness and charm and wonderfulness of everybody who we encountered there. Everybody was so kind. Everybody was so sweet. Now, I don't pretend that that might also have been because of the color of my skin. Who knows? But at the same time, to know that these are the same people who are, you know, who were propping up Trump and keeping him in office and some of whom had views that I would probably find reprehensible myself made me want to talk to them more. It made me want to know the etymology of how these beliefs were formed and what their beliefs were just so that I could understand, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the thing, right, is that we have to start listening to other perspectives. And we, and we have to understand it, right? And the, the way we're going to understand it is by talking and listening. Whether or not the current media ecosystem is going to allow that to happen is another matter. But, oh boy, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, Don, Don, <laughs> you, you got to do it. <laughs> There's a nice optimistic way to end that segment. Yeah. I like it, Yeah. <laughs> And that will do it for this week's show. Uh, Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have uh, any socials where people should follow you and read some of your fantastic writing about uh, income inequality and, uh, and, and justice? Oh, yes. Well, um, you can find me on BuzzFeedNews.com. You have to spell my name correctly. <laughs> I was going to ask you that because, of course, your name is spelled with an E, Vanessa, as opposed to Vanessa. I'm assuming not only are you tired of people spelling your name wrong, I'm going to also assume that you are tired of people saying, hey, how many people spell your name wrong? Oh, my God. You know what? It's almost an error that I don't even notice anymore because I get so many emails and other communication that spell my name with a V-A instead of a V-E. Um, <laughs> but you know what? You'll find me. I'm on BuzzFeed News. Um, I'm on Twitter at Vanessa Wong. And um, you can find me, you know, just find me. I'm easy to find. <laughs> And Vanessa's doing some really great reporting, some really vital reporting with uh, some really solid writing as well. So I heartily recommend you go follow her. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Vanessa. Thanks so much, Don. It was a pleasure. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com. 
follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things, or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.